I went to Blockbuster today to rent Cinderella Man, and guess what? She's still a classic? I found out that our son, the liar, had been fired three weeks ago. From Blockbuster? How the fuck you do that? They got Reese's monkeys working as managers over there. He was taking promotional items and selling them. Movie posters, stand-ups. Standees. Now, this whole thing's bullshit. Most of that stuff gets thrown out anyway. The store's policy was very clear. Yeah, well, maybe I care about the environment. Right, did that ever occur to you? Wallace and Gromit? I mean, that weighed like 50 pounds. It's Britney, bitch. And uh, the Iraq, everywhere, like, such as. I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Out, Charlie! Our next-door neighbors are foreign countries. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank you. Now watch this drive. Okay, let's get at it. We gotta pull the pin. We gotta take a clock on this episode. Much like Bobby Oppenheimer's bomb, things are counting down. <laughs> I'm morally conflicted about <laughs> putting these truths out into the world. <laughs> yeah, let's draw that analogy. <laughs> I am become shit poster, ironicizer of worlds. He does say the line in the movie, Dan went uh, on Friday. and Pretty He said late. someone stood up and clapped when Killian Murphy said the line. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> a loser. <laughs> <laughs> people need their treats. Yeah. Let people enjoy things is the unofficial right. motto of our podcast where we make fun of things. Unless what you enjoy let is a red people. notice. In yeah. Which case. yeah, let people enjoy the atomic bomb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, going up to the anti-abortion protesters and being like, let people enjoy things. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, I'm going to be Podcast Daddy, forces to start the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Remember Shuffle. My name is Ben. With me, as always, is my co-host, Jordano. Hi! <laughs> Just finding a new way to say your name bad every time. <laughs> and we are joined today by one of our absolute favorite guests to have. Guest on some of our best performing episodes, and when he comes here, we officially become, we three, the top knobs. <laughs> it's none other mm-hmm. than Kyle. hey <laughs> Is this my fifth? Is this when I get the SNL smoking jacket? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you tie JD. So, uh, yeah, we're going to have you two fight to the death in a cage match at one point. Well, not to the death, but, uh, you know. To the maim? Yeah. To the maim. Yeah, sure. fight to the maim. If we ever have a live show, we'll have to choose between Kyle and JD. So, if you're a listener, let us know which one you like more. <laughs> yeah. Don't sound <laughs> off on any of the several professional podcaster guests that we have. We'd really like to hear your opinion <laughs> on our childhood friends that we have come on the pod. <laughs> the two guys that you know. <laughs> Actually, Ben, I got some listener feedback, if you care to hear it. Oh, please. Because I read some books on how to be a podcaster, and they said that you should have recognizable character traits, Mm -hmm. and then that way you don't have to make jokes. You can just act in character, Mm -hmm. and that will be funny. Because it's like, Ben is doing Ben's thing. So I asked a listener, like, what do you think is a Ben quality that always makes you laugh? Mm -hmm. And something he said was that Ben's thing is that he's annoying, but right. (laughs) (laughs) God damn. <laughs> this guy a pickup artist? Because that is a flawless <laughs> neg. <laughs> no, no, like, sorry, sorry. He doesn't mean that you're generally annoying. He means that he finds it funny when you're being annoying, mm-hmm. but also you're technically correct. Hmm. I feel like I need an example. Is he just describing, like, being a pedant? Pedant? 
Oh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> wait, 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 hold up. Before we get going, what are quintessential Giordano traits? Because if it's something like, oh, quintessentially Giordano is when you're charming and handsome, I'll know you made up this entire interaction. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, it was like a friend of mine who had never met you. And oh, so like okay. I felt awkward asking about myself. Oh, okay. But you should ask maybe someone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can try and be... Yeah, like, you're describing like, what makes a lazy sitcom good. You don't need jokes. You just need Joey to say his catchphrases and do Joey things and put Joey in funny situations where he'll act like Joey. Yeah, I mean, that's not lazy sitcom. That's all television. That, that is like how art works. Well, like how- what's the podcast equivalent of Jim just mugging at the camera? Because mm, I feel like that's yeah. what you're looking for. Where it's like, you just have to look a certain way and you get mm-hmm. the laughter. What's the podcast equivalent? I mean, you can name traits from our favorite podcasters, right? And it's, they're being themselves. And that is inherently funny for someone to act in character. All right. Today, I'm going to establish my own character lore as being profoundly <laughs> anti-technology. <laughs> <laughs> Well, certainly listening to you guys try and set up your audio equipment, that's very in character for you. <laughs> Listeners, this is the 55th minute. Yeah, it's been big uh, what intarnation energy, I feel like we've been trying to set these mics up. <laughs> Just baffled by these knobs. So yeah, Blockbuster. Yes, today we are discussing Blockbuster, the now gone the way of the dodo video store rental chain that had its fall in the 2000s, as well as the concurrent but not causally related rise of the streaming giant Netflix. That's our topic today. And why are we doing this today, Jordano? Yes. Why should we care about Blockbuster on a 2000s podcast? Well, I think that Blockbuster is an amazing case study and microcosm for a transition that we've seen since the 90s to the 2010s, the way that the 2000s was liminal space for technology. If you looked at the top five largest companies in 1995, they all provide physical goods. General Motors, ExxonMobil, Walmart, oil, cars. Tchotchkes, doodads, (laughs) treats. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Bobbles. And now, of course, all of the most valuable companies are tech companies, right? And so that transition kicks off the decade with the dot-com boom in 2000 and is fully realized by the end of the decade. And by looking at Blockbuster and its transition to Netflix, I think that it can tell us a lot about how our lives have changed as a result of this move from a physical good-dominated economy to uh, technology companies in terms of the way that we are now algorithmically served content at basically every minute of the day, in terms of how everything has moved to a subscription model, in terms terms of reducing friction of any kind in our day-to-day lives. I think that showing the differences between Blockbuster and Netflix is a great case study for looking at how our lives have changed since the 90s. Yeah, and I think it also is very emblematic of the phenomenon where how you consume media affects your relationship to it. And we'll dig down into this in full later, but if you ever talk to a boomer or an older Gen Xer, you may hear some take along these lines. When you sat in a movie theater and you knew you couldn't watch it again, you watched that movie differently, dang it. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where we are going to be old heads as middle millennials. Yeah, I think you watch something different on streaming than you did when you picked up a physical DVD at the Blockbuster. And we're going to dig into this in full later, but it has fundamentally changed our relationship to film, to art. Exactly. How we consume it and how it's made. Yeah. And so our first section here is just to do a little reminiscent a little reminiscent on a little what blockbuster reminiscent <laughs> <laughs> 
gone reminiscent. Is what is, I have a sign on my door when I'm out. So Blockbuster is universally loved. Everybody loved this place and has the strangest, fondest memories. And we've now, like, you know, 20 years later, we're, we're fully back in the nostalgia cycle for Blockbuster. I don't think that if you asked anyone in, like, 2013 how they felt about it, it would have been that strong. But I think everybody would love to walk around a Blockbuster right now. Yeah, I think if you asked someone in 2013, they would gloat. Everyone would be a little fucking Monday morning quarterback MBA. Oh, I, I wouldn't have done that if I were making the business decisions. I would have bought Netflix and, you know, let's dance on the yeah, grave. Yeah, I wouldn't have done that if I was the coach in of Blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, first time, long time. <laughs> I would have bought Netflix. I would have never introduced no late fees. <laughs> I, I would have started carrying porn. <laughs> and, and frankly, I would have drafted Peyton Manning. <laughs> yeah. And so let's just talk about what made Blockbuster. Why, why do we look so fondly upon our time there? It was it was literally just picking a movie in a room, wasn't it? Because everything is bad now. <laughs> <laughs> because there's nothing good anymore, I think is the main reason. Expand on that. <laughs> <laughs> so Blockbuster, you know it, you remember it, you love it. Okay, so the experience of Blockbuster, you walk in, there's blue car. It. There's yellow walls, frankly, kind of objectively an ugly combination of things. And yet familiar everywhere you look, there's all the famous people that you know. <laughs> Their faces are everywhere on the boxes. You had Tom Hanks is smiling at you from the rack. And there was something about the smell of candy and plastic. I love movies. You know that. That smell in Blockbuster, that candy and carpet smell, I get high off and you walk around and there's this feeling of possibility, this mm. feeling of choice. In some way, you as a consumer are, albeit limited to what they choose to put out, but you feel like you are there to like, exercise a choice, which again, <laughs> I think is increasingly being taken from us. <laughs> but you walked around, you looked, maybe you're with your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend and you're chatting and you're trying to figure it out. And you know, at some point you're going to pick something out. You're going to go home and have a nice night. You're going to sit, <laughs> you're going to watch the thing. It'll be good. It'll be bad. Who knows? But you'll talk about it afterwards. You'll talk about it. You'll go. You'll drop it off. You might chat with the person at the desk about how it was. There was a whole uh, ritual to it that was very familiar and very comfortable. And yeah, it felt like you were exercising agency, not just yeah. choice, but agency. <laughs> Remember agency, everyone? <laughs> OK, if I were to put on my Ben cap for a second and say, but actually Netflix gives you more choice. <laughs> I would never say such a thing. <laughs> yeah. So like you said, you'd go to Blockbuster, you'd look for a movie for an hour and it was generally an enjoyable experience to do that and yet scrolling through netflix is not something that anyone is happy about mm -hmm. like you do it and you hate that you do that you're doom scrolling on netflix but you weren't doom scrolling in the video store no so i think there's a cynical view has to do with marketing we are magpies right we like what is familiar and comfortable and recognizable so you could be on the road and go to a blockbuster and you'd see the same bukkakied teenager <laughs> with the fucking polo <laughs> who thinks he's the next Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> you had the same recognizable branding, the same snacks. I know that in a way we crave novelty, but we also crave familiarity in a lot of ways. That's why chains can be successful. And it's why, especially in North America, every city looks the same now. It's why for any Canadian listeners out there, Ontario has these embarrassing fucking chains called Boston Pizza, New York Fries, and Swiss Chalet. Three <laughs> chains named after... <laughs> After countries not known for those things. Yeah, I can't wait to go down and get a New York French fry. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that's the cynical view of what made Blockbuster so popular. But the sincere view, if I may, is that the Blockbuster acted in suburban North America the way that the Piazza acts in Italy. It is what they call (laughs) in urban studies the third place which we don't build anymore. The third place is just a location that is not your home. It's not your work. It's a third place. And of course, because everything is bad over here because of fucking car dependent infrastructure and whatnot, our third place is you still have to engage in commerce, right? It's still a blockbuster. (laughs) In an ideal world, the third place is a piazza, a library, some kind of place where you can just hang out and form social bonds with your community. And the blockbuster is, I think, for a lot of people, the closest we got to that, which is, I said it would be sincere, but it's actually quite bleak and grim if oh, you think terrible. about it for even a moment. <laughs> yeah, and when I say that very rosy view of what it was, that's what it felt like. It wasn't that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it wasn't actually that you were going to this wonderful place. But when you grew up in the suburbs, it was the best you had. Mm-hmm. Like it was there or Burger King. Oof. Those were literally the two places you could go hang out. And one smelled better than the other. <laughs> <laughs> And didn't make your tummy feel bad. And I think the other thing, too, is like that sense of agency, which, again, we're increasingly bereft of. It wasn't real, but at least it felt real at the time. And I think that's the thing about the Netflix doom scrolling thing is as you're scrolling through, I think you're much more aware now of how alienating the experience is as you're just going through and you're like garbage, garbage, seeing it, garbage, garbage. (laughs) There's something very alienating about it all just being on your little screen in front of you as you're sitting on your couch and you'd go to a blockbuster and there were times you'd walk around for an hour and be Mm -hmm. like, I don't, nothing looks that good, but I'm here. I came in. So I'll just get something and maybe you would watch something you didn't know. But on Netflix, you're just kind of always like, ah, fuck it. I'll put the office on. And then (laughs) you're boom. Season three of the office is like what you're watching again for like the 10th time. (laughs) Yeah. Ben, you and I would go there to rent a video game a lot. And that was half of the fun Mm -hmm. was making a joint decision to rent that. What was that game where the communists took over the United Yo, States. Yo, Freedom Fighters? <laughs> freedom Fighters. Yeah. Uh, if any listeners remember Freedom Fighters want to come on the pod for Freedom <laughs> Fighters episode. That might be a good reactionary video game episode. You play a New honestly. York City plumber. I think it's a reference to Mario. But it's got to be. You could yeah. go through the sewers to kill Russia. These damn Marxists have taken over. <laughs> These woke Marxists. <laughs> the woke Soviet Union has invaded New York. <laughs> Yeah, I guess Mario uh, as the fascist anti-communist. That all scans. <laughs> Absolutely scans. Yeah, if Mario were real in the 1980s, he'd be a huge fan of Il Duce. Oh he'd, he'd be talking about how the trains used to run on time back in the old country under Il Duce. <laughs> he certainly supports the monarchy. We know that. <laughs> By the time the 2000s, DVDs and stuff was like a lot more accessible generally. But in the 90s, movies were expensive, which I didn't fully appreciate, I guess because I was a kid and we did rent or watch like whatever my dad taped off TV. Yeah, it was like a hundred bucks to buy a VHS. So it was also the only way to get movies for Mm -hmm. a long time. The other reason people have positive interactions is it was the only way to get a thing and be like, tonight I want to watch this. And the only way to do it would be go to Blockbuster, rent it, bring it home, check it out. Like that literally wasn't an option before then. Unless like, you you know, there were like small video stores, but they might have 10 things that were already 10 years old. Mm -hmm. But 
But if you want to see something new, it was the only way for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's a good segue to talking about the rise of Blockbuster. I'll give you a little history on the company. And that's exactly right. That when VHSs first came out, they were priced at like $100 per cassette. And the logic was that studios figured, hey, these will get watched 20 times. We charge $5 per movie theater ticket. So we're still charging about $5 per viewing, right? And the only thing that actually you could buy for less than that was kids movies. And so this, of course, leads to a rental market, right? $100 per VHS. Now it's something you rent, right? And so studios actually sue them. They sue video rental places because businesses are morons, which is another through line for this episode. <laughs> and the Supreme Court has to rule against the studios and say that, yes, you are allowed to rent VHSs. And by 1987, movie studios are making more from video cassette sales than from movie theaters. And they're like, oh, actually, it's good. <laughs> Lion King will make a half a billion dollars in VHS sales. Insane. You got to love when like a lucrative business opportunity comes up and the companies that can take advantage of it are completely resistant to changing the way they do things. It's like trying to give a dog medicine. <laughs> <laughs> I like the worms in my butt. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, a couple of things pop out at me right off the bat. Number one, insane that there was a Supreme Court decision that went in favor of the consumer oh and citizen. Said, what a time. What a time. Well, thank God they had an advocate in the form of a different type of business. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, B of all, and this is way no longer the case because conservatism has gone off the rails even more so. But if you listen to like Obama era conservative rhetoric on why business leaders deserve all they have, they're going to say they're job creators. And more than that, they're risk takers. And then you hear stories like this where it's like, fuck, fuck, fuck. They made the VHS tapes. We got to take them right to the Supreme Court. <laughs> How dare they buy the things we're yeah. selling? Not only are they not taking on risk, they are actively suing anything new. Just totally Totally novelty averse, in fact. Uh, yeah, we'll kind of see that come up again with Napster, where people are like, hey, we have the technology to actually share this costlessly and without having to visit anywhere. And they're like, nope, nope, not allowed. And it'll, it'll take them over a decade to build the same infrastructure that basically volunteers built. <laughs> and so Blockbuster's early ethos is built around expansion. So in 1987, Wayne Huizenga, he acquires Blockbuster when it's at 19 stores and he proceeds to open a new blockbuster every 17 hours and this guy he's such a crazy business force he owns the the miami the miami fish of some kind uh, they're mlb team. marlins marlins yeah the marlins and i think he owns the dolphins as well he owns waste management he, this guy just loves to buy and expand this guy has the thing that troy mcclure has for fish <laughs> but in his business yeah. no what i have is a romantic abnormality <laughs> and he doesn't really know how to run businesses, but goddamn, does he know how to expand them? He's the expander. <laughs> And there are 9,000 stores by its peak in 2004. And because this is a brand new industry, right? It was illegal up until this point. And so their competition at this point is variety stores and like mom and pop video shops. And Blockbuster has a national advertising campaign and they do revenue sharing with the studios, which means they can get 100 copies of a new release. The mom 
mom and pop shop will probably have two or three. Because like I said, these are expensive. It can cost up to $400,000 in the early 90s to open a video store because the cassettes cost $100 each. Well, they're not still like 100 bucks by the early 90s, are they? I think they've come down to like $65, $70. Okay, damn. But still quite expensive. And at this point, you're only renting them out for a dollar. So, but it's quite expensive and it's brand new. And so they can expand extremely quickly and take over, especially via revenue sharing. But this revenue sharing thing, so we read a really good book in preparation for this episode called Built to Fail. Actually, sorry, scratch that. It's a really poorly written book, (laughs) but it's written by someone who has tremendous insider knowledge of Alan Payne. And he describes revenue sharing as being tethered to a corpse. And so what it does is sort of financially undermines you, but it allows you to basically undercut any competition that you might encounter. Mm. And so these mom and pop shops get decimated by Blockbuster. Do do you want to explain what it is? Yeah, so revenue sharing is basically this agreement where you can get new releases when they come out for a fraction of the cost, but every time it's rented, you have to pay money to the studio. And so it means that you're making very little money compared to, you know, non-rev share agreement, but you are known for always having the video on your shelf. Per rental, you make less, but you're able to rent so much more. Prior to that, mom and pop stores, I don't know, where did you guys get rentals before Blockbuster? The Ion Video. Ion Video. The Illuminati run video (laughs) store that I think had the eye on the pyramid on their logo. Kyle, you you mentioned that you went to like a variety store for your rental. My sister and I would walk five blocks to PJ's Variety and (laughs) yeah, it was just like a convenience store and it would have maybe 10. And Mr. PJ, he never went out to the studios to arrange some kind of (laughs) revenue sharing agreement. Yeah, I'm sure he was busy trying to feed his family of like 10 children. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because when you describe it, Giordano, it almost sounds like a proto big tech strategy. We're going to eat loss in the short term while pursuing market share, right? Yeah, this is something that we'll see with tech companies and we'll talk about later is tech's ability to scale is exponentially higher than a a brick and mortar store, Mm -hmm. right? You only have to pay for additional server space, which is basically free. And this is Blockbuster. This is their version of that, Mm -hmm. right? Obviously, it's way more expensive and opens yourself up to way more liability opening up a store every 17 hours. (laughs) But this is how you scale in in a pre-internet age. Yeah. So how did this giant die? How did its fall come? So there's this misconception that Netflix killed Blockbuster. And I think that we all think that because that's just what we did in that time. We shifted from the video store to using Netflix. But that's not actually financially what did Blockbuster in. Because when Netflix mails its very first DVD in 1997, Blockbuster's market valuation has already been cut in half over the four preceding years. Whoa! So. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Reaction. <laughs> sorry. Did I, what did I do? No, no, Mamma mia. There was just like a big pause. Oh, I, I thought you were waiting for me to pause. That's crazy. <laughs> Okay, and let's just get into why is Blockbuster a financial mess in the 90s, Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't make any sense. And it's because they've hired a couple CEOs, John Antioco. He's sort of the big one. They introduced these corporate initiatives that were completely antithetical to keeping movies stocked on the shelf. And as a movie rental place, you really have two jobs to make sure the movie that people want is in stock and to make the rentals as cheap as possible. This is ultimately what the customer is looking for. Makes sense. 
And Blockbuster has a Zap Brannigan approach <laughs> to keeping the movies in stock. It's like, let's not do a kind of analysis on our inventory to see what we need. It's just, let's buy as many copies as possible and throw wave after wave of our own men <laughs> <laughs> to make sure that we're in stock. Which is kind of crazy because surely with not that much effort, they could have gathered so much information. You need to scan the video to rent it. And you they had records. They could have done some kind of fucking data analytics to use a modern yep. buzzword, but instead <laughs> didn't. We're just like, no, just I need 9,000 copies of Titanic yesterday. It's funny because in the, the last Blockbuster documentary, one of the things that they talk about is part of how they expanded so fast is they were the only ones using computers to actually check things out instead of having like a little ledger that you just write things in. And I can clarify if you want me to. Sure. That was actually the original guy who started the first 17 stores. Mm. And that was just to keep track of who owed you a movie, not necessarily to measure the effectiveness of the business. Yeah, well, no, that's what I was going to say. But right. They just stopped there. They have this technology. They have this ability to track. And they're like, eh, good enough. We know who's got what. But let's never mm-hmm. think about it in the aggregate. <laughs> let's never yeah. put any of the information <laughs> from our 9,000 stores together <laughs> to look for any kind of pattern or any kind of trend. Point, Dexter here wants to put it on a graph. (laughs) (laughs) The sense I got reading Built to Fail is that anybody who is smart enough to look at Blockbuster as a retail business and evaluate it as such and run it like a a Walmart or something could also see the writing on the wall and be like, I don't want to be renting media that's eventually going to be digital. But Mm. just to give you an idea of why their data collection was so bad, Viacom acquires Blockbuster in the early 90s and they do it in order to take on more debt so that they can buy Paramount because Mm. Blockbuster generates a lot of cash flow. Mm. And so because it's just a cash flow wing of a larger media company, there is no incentive for them to spend money on updating Blockbuster's computer systems to collect data on customer habits. Mm. And so it's like, we're not going to put money into this company. We need the money it's giving us. That's sort of the thinking on Viacom's part. Mm. Isn't this basically exactly what happened to Instapot? (laughs) This company that was like (laughs) quite successful and reliable. People loved it. Someone else bought it to saddle it with debt and then walk away (laughs) scot-free. Capitalism, (laughs) baby. The system works. God forbid you make just a perfect pot. (laughs) We got to get pot gold subscription (laughs) service. (laughs) Yeah, we can cut this, but a friend of Giordano and I came in to Giordano's apartment with a giant, disgusting Subway sandwich. And he was like, this is Subway Max. What? (laughs) All it is, is you get the 12 inch, but you add extra protein and that's their max size. But for a split second, Jordano and I were like, you have a Subway subscription service? (laughs) Oh, that's coming. (laughs) That's coming. (laughs) Because in the moment, we're like, I think that's what that is. (laughs) There's no money in sandwiches anymore. No, you actually have to get the Yum Foods 1 subscription. And that's like a a three-part subscription to Subway, KFC, and Burger King. Oh, it's a three for... I mean, you're leaving right, money on yeah. the table, not by. <laughs> <laughs> I have the um, Outback Steakhouse subscription. <laughs> Every 11th Bloomin' Onion is free. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can have as many Bloomin' Onions as I want. <laughs> I have the subscription. <laughs> 
coffee shops sell subscriptions now, which is like a hilarious way of these brick and mortar companies being like, we are a tech company now, <laughs> actually. But just getting back to Built to Fail, I mentioned that they have these horrible corporate initiatives that are antithetical to running a blockbuster store, a retail business. And I'd like to actually list what those things are. Alan Payne, the guy who wrote Built to Fail, he owned several dozen blockbusters and was its most successful franchisee. He owned franchises in Texas and Alaska. And in fact, in 2014, four years after Blockbuster goes bankrupt, he owns over half of the remaining stores because his are just the most profitable ones mm. year over year throughout the 90s and 2000s that he can keep them alive longer because he was actually running them properly. And he credits all of his comparative to success to ignoring and not participating in a single one of Blockbuster's <laughs> headline grabbing initiatives. His words. Hell yeah. And so he doesn't do revenue sharing. He only allows new releases to be rented for a single night so that rentals on Friday can be back in circulation on Saturday. He doesn't try and make Blockbuster a retail store selling, you know, clothes or music. He doesn't do no late fees. He doesn't participate in Blockbuster by mail. He doesn't participate in the Blockbuster movie pass. His North Star is to ignore every single one of these lizard brain initiatives from corporate. And instead of doing all this, he offers rentals for one third of the price of other Blockbusters. Because in his view, he's like, I can do more volume if I have to spend less on wastage, essentially. Mm -hmm. So late fees was, was a big one, right? The no late fees. Blockbusters EBITDA, which is earnings before interest taxes and depreciation. Uh. <laughs> 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 MBA motherfucker. <laughs> it drops from 500 million to 138 million. Not their EBITDA. <laughs> <laughs> what did John Bazinga think? <laughs> Well, I mean, we'll get into this later, but this is one of the last companies to not be run by the bean counters. And I think it's why we loved it so much, but it just couldn't exist in the modern world because it has to compete with companies run by an algorithm. Mm. And so retail stores, right? Selling t-shirts and CDs and stuff. He doesn't participate in that because that means you can have less copies of movies on the floor. And that's not what you want from Blockbuster. You don't want a Furby t-shirt or a Creed. CD. You are there to rent a movie and so show me as many individual copies as you can. Another thing he was really big on, by the way, is emphasizing the catalog. Traditionally, Blockbuster made 90% of its money from new releases and he understood that we have 80 years of good movies that have come out. Mm. Why don't we push people towards renting Uncle Buck? You know, it's a classic. I'm more of a plain strange than automobiles fan myself when it comes to the John mm. Candy oeuvre. And he doesn't do revenue sharing because he understands that you're like reducing your profit Ability. Fundamentally, he understands one thing, which is I make money by having and moving movies. <laughs> This reminds me of the joke you see online every now and then. It's like a shit post along the lines of you walk by a business school class and the teacher's up at the board saying things like profits equals revenue minus costs. And everyone's scribbling as if it's a fucking real degree. This is the easiest task in the world. Move mm -hmm. movies. That's it. Have the movies. Get them back promptly. Encourage people to rent and watch movies. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's all you have to do. Yep. Instead, you got these Jack Donnelly motherfuckers <laughs> up, up in corporate <laughs> we're like no, no no we're gonna synergize people can get their fucking post grunge cds the same place that they rent goddamn men in black 2 
Oh, you got to vertically mm-hmm. integrate. <laughs> and people are okay with a one-day rental instead of a three-day rental if it's a third of the price. Ultimately, they're not going to complain because now you can get that movie back in circulation for Saturday and Sunday night when you're doing the majority of your rentals. Oh, and would you look at that? I'm back at the Blockbuster. Oh, maybe I'll get another movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's only a dollar. <laughs> One of the things that they talked about in, in the movie was the decision to put the movies on the shelves, which I thought was interesting because that was part of the quote-unquote, uh, again, bleak use of the term magic of going into your <laughs> Blockbuster. <laughs> Was, yeah, you walk in and there were movies everywhere, shelves and shelves and shelves of movies. You would go and you would be the one, like fucking Indiana Jones, pulling it off the pedestal. (laughs) You picked up the black and white case underneath the cover and brought it over to them and said, please, may I have this? And then they did the little squish a thing where they take the lock off and and they check it. They make sure the disc is in there and they hand it to you and they say, yes, you may have it for you. You know, you are a holder of the card. (laughs) You are a special boy with a special card. So yes, you can take the video home and enjoy it. You just have to bring it back when you're done. And I think it's funny how I wouldn't have thought that that was a revolutionary thing, but I would say that's definitely was part of the appeal and is so different than being like, hey, hey, PJ, do you have a copy of Christmas Vacation back there with the cigarettes? (laughs) And then him being like, yes, and scribbling it down and tossing it at you. There was a whole ritual to it that they they did nail. We weren't saying this at the time, but when you strolled through the blockbuster, you had main character energy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I just want to tell a quick story, but Alan Payne, who wrote that book and was the successful franchisee that just ignored everything Blockbuster Corporate told him to do. He was also a believer in the company. He was buying more franchises well into the 2000s. And he set up a franchise board so that he could try and leverage it because he was always trying to tell corporate how he was doing a good job. (laughs) And he was like, you should have dinner with me sometime. And I can tell you why my stores are the most profitable every year and why I keep winning these franchise awards. And corporate blows him off. The CEO never meets with him. And finally, in 2008 or 2009, the CEO responds to one of his emails and is like, hey, um, I'd like to talk to you. And I'm actually flying up to Alaska for a fishing trip. And if you want to come on the plane, you can talk to me for a bit while on the plane ride up. So he flies down to Dallas so that he can get on this plane and like have his attention for a few hours when the plane flies up on the Blockbuster private jet, of course. And the guy is barely listening to him and he seems annoyed. And when he lands, Alan is confused and he calls his friend who's also a franchisee and is like, I don't get it. He invited me to meet and then he didn't really want to talk. And the friend was like, yeah, you're an idiot. He wanted to turn his fishing trip to Alaska into a tax write-off. That's why you were on the plane. He, he probably thought you were annoying talking about <laughs> Blockbuster the whole time. How much do you want to bet all these business losers who just objectively and categorically failed? How much do you want to bet they're all still multimillionaires, right? Oh, all, of course. All, yeah. That's the whole thing, Ben. <laughs> that's why you saddle the debt onto the company. You don't take it yourself (laughs) yeah so his compensation the ceo johnny antioco the guy who ruined the company was 50 million a year and he kept getting his contract extended and in fact they couldn't fire him in the end because he had a clause in his contract where if he was fired he got 100 million dollars and so to fire him would be to financially ruin the company these fucking business psychos they love to read like sun tzu the art of war or the book of five (laughs) rings the the samurai code of bushido honor and there's one particular (laughs) particular samurai institution i 
I would really like them to take up. It involves writing a haiku and finding your second, <laughs> your best boy. And it's kind of like a like a contemplative exercise to really think about the ways in which you fucked up and uh, dishonored your bloodline. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny. They do really have their best boys because they are surrounded by their friends, their cronies. And it was funny watching this guy, Alan, sincerely believe in the company and think that his ideas would be implemented if only they knew that they were successful. And it's like, no, 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 no. They want their own ideas to be successful, not your ideas. <laughs> not the ones that are field tested and proven to work. <laughs> right. This guy came from fucking Taco Bell. The way that he ascended to this level of management, John Antioco was inventing the cheesy gordita crunch, which <laughs> admittedly, groundbreaking. <laughs> <but> <laughs> it's part of my go-to order. And I have said this before, the guy who came up with the vertical horizontal integration of the Doritos Locos taco. I hope he has a fucking climate change bunker in New Zealand, man. He's, he has earned it. I do love the idea of being like, okay, so get this. You got hard shell, you got soft shell. What if we glued them together with cheese? Oh, sorry, Chez. We are not legally permitted to call this product cheese. So there is a, a Z there. But um, what if we just glued them together and then you don't have to choose? And then everyone was like, holy shit, dude. <laughs> it's very difficult for me to uh, come down on, like, I, I generally root for like, an Italian-American to be winning, but he is one of history's greatest monsters. <laughs> so these decisions are catastrophic for inventory and profitability and blockbuster is actually it's carried along by the winds of good fortune first dvds are released and this bails out the company because when dvds come out studios decide that they want them to be collector's items so they want them to be owned by consumers in great quantity mm. right it's not like cassette tapes studios are like we want people to have a whole library of dvds at their house mm -hmm. so we're going to price them at 15 to 20 dollars so that people can collect them mm -hmm. and i think that that is generally kind of how that went a lot of people had dvd collections and so this of course bails out blockbuster because now they're buying something for 15 dollars and renting it out for five mm -hmm. and so it's like really hard to not have that work <laughs> despite uh john Ant antioco's best efforts and so they keep getting buoyed by these swells and ditto for things like renting out seasons of television shows mm. right all of a sudden we can double or triple the amount of content that we can offer people in the new releases section and we can rent them one disc at a time. And so they are succeeding by swinging from vine to vine, despite very deep financial and structural problems. But that only works if there's another vine. And then 2009 and the financial crisis happens and there is no vine. Blockbuster has managed to white knuckle its way through 20 years of unprecedented American growth. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> By sheer grit, determination, and force of will. <laughs> Then as soon as there's a bump in the road, the whole thing falls apart like a house of cards. <laughs> Checkmate. In 2010, when they go bankrupt, there's a lot of money to be made in video renting still, actually, at that point. I know in our hometown, I remember seeing a video rental place open up after Blockbuster closed, if you guys in recall. In the same building. <laughs> but the second they encountered the slightest amount of competition in the form of Redbox or DVR, TiVo or Netflix, the company just did not have have the financial fundamentals to survive. It's so fucking funny, dude. Redbox was the, like, 
like, have you ever met a human being who has rented a Redbox movie? <laughs> no, it's the best system. I go to Walmart or Target or whatever big box store, and there's just a box there. And it has, I don't even know what they carry. Yeah, well, it, actually, it was started by like a Netflix early employee. Mm-hmm. And so he understood the algorithmic nature of how, like, the movies that are in there are like, algorithmically the ones that people are going to rent the most often, mm-hmm. right? And so he could optimize. And you, your costs are low. You're putting them, like, in a McDonald's yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Man, I sympathize with Blockbuster because my personal financial planning is a lot like Blockbuster's, which is we will be fine as long as not a single obstacle or hurdle is encountered, (laughs) right? You know how Bernie Sanders is always talking about, like, most Americans couldn't afford to fly to a relative's funeral. Like, that's me, baby. (laughs) I'm just like Blockbuster. Maybe that's why millennials are so attached to it, because now we live in the same economic precarity that Blockbuster (laughs) operated under for 20 years. And we mm-hmm. also make terrible decisions <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> despite our best interests. They're just like us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the DVD coming out, that's like getting your tax return. <laughs> Buying a, uh, a snow cone machine is <laughs> like waiving late fees. <laughs> You didn't touch on the waiving late fees part, which I think is like particularly funny of the mistakes. Just like the idea of like, now people just don't bring them back. So one of the hilarious mistakes that was made was the decision to get rid of late fees. So in 2004, they decided to get rid of all late fees. And before then, at least there was some incentive to bring back the product to the store so that someone else could rent it. But again, in another phenomenally bad financial decision, they decided to get rid of late fees to try and, I don't know, bring more people in. And then obviously what happened is people just didn't bring the movies back because there was Mm -hmm. no reason to. So now you would go in and try and get something and you just couldn't. And they couldn't tell you when it would be back because (laughs) there was no reason for the person to bring it back unless they were just a good person, I suppose. And the store would call and nag you. Yeah, great. Another task for our employees to do. But yeah, their cash Hmm. flow dropped by two thirds as soon as they implemented this policy. Because of course it would. Because your job is to move movies. <laughs> Can't stress that enough. <laughs> and you have, it's in the name. You, you have... God damn it. You, you have removed any incentive to move the movies back. I have to return some videotapes. You have gotten just centrifugal force of movies <laughs> instead of centri- centripetal, centripetal force no, of movies. No, a lot of physicists are... Uh, hackles <laughs> are being raised right now, then, but we won't get into the, the evergreen debate about centrifugal versus centripetal forces. <laughs> yeah, and if you kept it for longer than a week past the due date, you technically bought it, which pissed a lot of people off because I didn't mean to buy a Happy Gilmore. Right, and then they tried to charge you the difference. Right, and it's like, well, I thought there were no late fees. And Again, it makes it so that there are fewer movies in your fucking inventory (laughs) and your job is to move movies, (laughs) to have and move movies. And people understand that you need this back. I have rented it. You don't really need a movie after you've watched it. (laughs) 
Oh, these this is making me mad. These fucking business losers. But yes, let's let's transition to uh, a quick film review of a documentary called The Last Blockbuster that we all watched about the last one of these 9,000 stores located in Bend, Oregon, and is run by this saint <laughs> named Heidi. Heidi, the blockbuster mom of her little town. It's a lot about her and what she does in the store and how she fundamentally understands that she has has to move movies and the <laughs> grit and determination and elbow grease that she does to keep this store alive. I would say that it's a character study in the attributes that made this store immune to the forces of capitalism that closed the other 99.99% of all <laughs> other stores, right? Yeah. What is different about one in 9,000 that made this possible? Mm. It is Heidi. That is the difference. She understood that Blockbuster is the third place. <laughs> yeah. Yes, actually. She calls herself the Blockbuster mom because because every teenager in this small town works at the Blockbuster. It's a dream job for a fucking teenager. She crochets Blockbuster hats and sells them in the store. Yeah, Heidi has what I would say is like slightly cool Anglican minister energy (laughs) if I had to put my thumb on it. You know, she's got lovely vibes. You really get the sense she's got your best interest. She's literally adopting children in this town. It's seemingly by way of Blockbuster. Which, don't tell the QAnon people about (laughs) this. Sound of Freedom 2. Yeah, this uh, fucking trafficking blockbuster pipeline operating in Bend, Oregon. But she just genuinely, she knows all the customers. She knows all the teens whose lives she has literally supported materially by hiring them. And you just get the sense that she really cares, to be clear, more than she should. Like (laughs) Part of her saintliness is that it is a blockbuster. (laughs) And she's clearly... Mm. giving a tremendous amount of her life to keeping it afloat single-handedly again in the absence of anything from above to help her out like one of the recurring themes is that although there is in a vague sense ownership and management somewhere they clearly have no awareness or Mm -hmm. interest in what is happening here and the recurring drama of it is whether or not their licensing agreement will get renewed (laughs) which is just purely her being like god i hope they let us continue to operate and to feed my family because <laughs> yeah, there, there's literally nothing she can do to exert agency. She could just say, hey, I still have a blockbuster. It's still profitable. Please keep the trademark up, even though I'm the last one, right? Exactly. You don't need to do anything else. <laughs> but yeah, just let me do it. Yeah. And I'll pay you the franchise fees. And it's unhinged that this is a recurring question for her and that there is mm-hmm. an element of like, she doesn't know. And presumably someone who probably definitely doesn't know where Bend, Oregon is on a map, uh, somewhere, <laughs> I don't know, based out of a shell company in... Uh, What's Joe Biden state again? <laughs> Delaware. <laughs> Signs off on this. But it's just wild. She is a one-woman force keeping, yeah, this last little bastion alive. She is the one. In the matrix of capitalism, <laughs> she is the one. <laughs> Like the rules of capitalism do not apply to her in the same way that it applies to 99% of other people. And her power is just being kind and creating a community. Yeah. Those are her Neo-like powers. Yeah, Ends up in this analogy, seeing the code is literally being like, oh, you want that movie? Yeah, I'll go to Walmart later and pick it up so we have it for you. (laughs) (laughs) That's most of what she's doing is being like, oh yeah, I'll get that. Sure, I'll go grab it. And you know what? If it's not Mm -hmm. at Walmart or Target, I'll try Amazon for it. (laughs) 
<laughs> I will try, you know, one of the four stores that are left. I think she has single-handedly prevented at least a dozen opioid overdoses by operating the last oh, blockbuster. Absolutely. <laughs> the third place oh, of Bend, Oregon. Yeah, this town would be uh-huh. as bleak as anywhere in Appalachia, if, if not for this blockbuster <laughs> keeping it afloat. It is the last coal mine <laughs> in Oregon, basically. There was a clip I sent Ben. I mean, I'll post it to our social media feed. Add Remember Shuffle Pot on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> but it's a clip of the show Undercover Boss, another great 2000 show, where they send the CEO of 7-Eleven to a particular franchise that is two or three times more profitable than any other franchise. And they don't know why. They're looking at the data and they're like, hmm, the location's not great. It's not open longer hours. It doesn't have all these brills. And they couldn't figure it out. So the CEO went to go work there and he figured out that the reason why it was outperforming every other location was it had someone like Heidi, mm-hmm. someone who was able to create a sense of community around something as bleak as a, a commerce event. <laughs> and so these people can just add so much to our lives. And unfortunately, they have to do it within the bounds of like a franchise capitalism. Blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> I do also want to mention and point out the fact that Heidi doesn't even own the Blockbuster franchise. Oh. She she has paid a manager's salary. There's an owner who's also interviewed in the documentary. And yeah, she's doing this and doesn't even own the Blockbuster. Yeah, that's absolutely the saddest part is every time it's they criminal, show the inside yeah. of her house and you're like, oh boy, Heidi. <laughs> the amount that you're doing and the fact that you're still generating revenue for this fucking company is like, yeah, you should be getting the $50 million here because you've... She should be the CEO of fucking Viacom. You got it. Whatever it is, you got it, Heidi. And you're doing it so hard every day and then they show the inside of her very normie suburban house with, again, her family, which consists of adopted children and quasi-adopted hoodlums that she's brought in. <laughs> she has like 10 mouths to feed, only like four of yeah. which belong to her. And yeah, she gets nothing, nothing for everything she's doing. And as Ben pointed out, she should be the CEO of Blockbuster. She understands what it takes to make Blockbuster succeed so much so that she is still operating 13 years after the company went bankrupt instead of fucking history's greatest monster, John Antioco. (laughs) She's like the Japanese soldiers who refuse to surrender, but good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and, and that is the grimmest, bleakest thing about the documentary. I mean... One of the saddest bits was seeing people drive 15 hours, 18 hours, flying from Spain just for the opportunity to walk through a blockbuster. And I think it's A, it shows how fucking desperate people are for the past, (laughs) for how things (laughs) used to be. B, it shows how fucking desperate people are for human connection. This last blockbuster in Oregon, it is running on alienation, isolation, loneliness, that's part of the fuel. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so bleak because it is the equivalent of in 20 years, everyone flying to somewhere in Maine to go to the last Walmart mm-hmm. so they can walk around Walmart and be like, oh, my God, I remember the fluorescent lights and the squeaky <laughs> floors. And look at this toothless old person greeting me just like it used to be <laughs> not being able to find anything or anyone to help me find the thing because it's 
too big and they sell too much. <laughs> and God, I missed this because at least I had somewhere to go that wasn't my pod. <laughs> Remember when we weren't in our pods? And that's what watching this felt like. And I have the same attachment to Blockbuster that they do. And I recognize how sad that is because, yeah, it just it reflects how bad things are now that it, it is. It's like, wouldn't it be nice if we could go back to this corporate monopoly that destroyed all these mom and pop places and took away any sort of ability to engage in maybe alternative cinema or like art house cinema that might have been offered at an independent place. It took all that away and it put all these things out of business. Wouldn't it be so nice to have it back? It's exactly like Walmart that way. It's like, oh, it destroyed all the mom and pop shops and God, I miss it so much because now we have nothing. Now we don't even have that. (laughs) Dude, they did a pop-up Zeller's here and people (laughs) lined up to go to Zeller's and they had a big crowd going to this and it's like, you don't even fucking remember Zeller's. Nobody knows what Zeller's was like, but we do have a sense that things maybe used to be better than they are now and maybe we can briefly glimpse the face of God again by going back to this time when I wasn't as unhappy as I am now. (laughs) Seems to be the general sense that we're all rolling with these days. We gotta say, it has the most annoying panelists of all time. They got Kevin Smith and then a bunch of D-list motherfuckers to talk about blockbuster and it stinks because it's very repetitive they all say the same things that we said at the top of the show but yeah they interview people who used to work at a video store or like have lived in bend or just had general thoughts about blockbuster and because of the documentary they got some of the most annoying people on the planet including like doug benson you know the director of super high me and he's just like this man doesn't blink and his head is the size (laughs) of his torso he is so grotesque to look at yeah i don't want to be too mean but for a visual medium he's not the best choice the camera spends a lot of time lingering on doug benson in a way that was deeply unsettling i also hated anytime ron fuchs was on screen yeah his laughing at his own comments the voice actor too from who did like the attack of the clones when jamie kennedy is the most tolerable person (laughs) in the documentary you know you have a problem yes one of my favorite scenes is for some reason heidi uses the same program to track the blockbuster rentals it's not a new ipad or whatever the fuck it is the 90s modem that she uses she has a stockpile of other modems in the back room and at one point you see her just repairing the 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 main modem that she uses with some of these backup parts by opening it up and cracking it out. It's covered with dust. It's disgusting. She gets all gross and thought about herself. She is like a fallout four scavenger in the post-apocalyptic wasteland of Bend, Oregon, (laughs) keeping the blockbuster alive or like a medieval monk recopying manuscripts after the fall Uh of Rome. She's fixing hardware, which is notoriously complicated and difficult. Uh, Anyway, now we're going to get into the rise and potential future fall of Netflix. It's wild how long Netflix has been around. Before they ever streamed a movie, they had been mailing DVDs for 13 years. Insane. Yeah. I thought of it as a quintessentially 2000s company. But yeah, the first DVD goes in the mailbox in 1997. Mm -hmm. They actually tried with cassettes, but they were too big. And so they had to wait until DVDs came out Mm. to make the company possible. And... Blockbuster, 90% of their business is new releases, right? As we 
talked about. And they recognize an opportunity here that, hey, like there's actually good movies that came out more than a month ago <laughs> that exist and people might want to see. And so they have a niche market available of people who love DVDs and need to watch the show on DVDs, you know, nerds and people that can appreciate cinema, I guess, in general. <laughs> We've talked about the book stuff white people like on this podcast before. And Netflix has mentioned several times in that book in 2010. And I think it's because it attracted a certain type of hipster who was like, I need my DVD and I need my criteria collection type movies. And there was a market for that out there, like film buff, which is hilarious now because that's certainly not what the average Netflix subscriber looks like now. No. But, and everybody knows the story now. But at the time, after the dot-com bubble burst, Netflix was short on cash. They were burning money. They had to lay off a ton of people, which is, is very funny to think about Netflix in 2002 laying off people considering how much more runway for growth they had but they are looking for money and they approach Blockbuster they fly down there they get a last minute appointment I think they actually rented out Paula Abdul's private jet to get down there sure and why not <laughs> <laughs> and yeah I read Mark Randolph's book which is really good much better than the Built to Fail book but he talks about being in that meeting with the Blockbuster executive John Antioco and they're laughed out of the meeting mm -hmm. Blockbuster is like 50 million dollars we'll just do this we'll we'll do dvd by rental ourselves and we'll beat you because we have all these resources and as we'll talk about later it's not possible for them to do that it's also very funny that netflix was tipping its hand from the get-go that they probably wanted you to watch shit online they have net in the name and yeah okay whatever you order online you scroll online but i think they always had their eye on the prize of watching online we all knew what their game was they didn't trick anybody that's 100 percent right he says there's a reason we didn't call it like mail flicks mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i did have that subscription <laughs> And it's because, yeah, they're a tech company. Like They saw Napster doing the thing that they were like, you know what, 15 years from now, <laughs> we should legally offer this sort of uh, distribution method considering how seamless it is. And so Netflix is driven by the algorithm, even from the early days. Like I said, Blockbuster keeps no data on its customers. In fact, when they launched Blockbuster All Access, which was like a monthly subscription to Blockbuster, where you got to rent as many movies as you want, Alan Payne asked them, it was 20 bucks. So he's like, how many customers are spending more than 20 bucks a month right now on rentals? Just so I can get an idea of what the liability is to losing. Like, yeah. Are we going customers? to make more or less money this way? <laughs> a really, a, a very basic like, question. Really fucking astute. <laughs> Blockbuster said, uh, we don't know because <laughs> we don't keep this kind of data. And it's like, I just want to know what percentage of people are renting more than four movies a month right now. And it's like, sorry, buddy. It's 2007 the technology has only come so far <laughs> <laughs> and netflix has this brilliant product cinematch right and so the way that netflix works is you send in your dvds whenever you want because it's a subscription service but you are actually are incentivized to return the dvds because netflix will just automatically send you three more as soon as they get back those dvds you signed up for cinematch based on its own algorithm for what Netflix thinks you will like, right? And crucially, not only are your preferences taken into account, but also its own inventory. And so it can steer people
people away from new releases to things that it has more in stock of. Mm. And I think that this sort of worked at the time because Netflix had access to every single movie that's ever made, as opposed to now where it has mostly access to its own content. But Netflix effectively uses the algorithm to tell you what to watch next. And uh, I mean, maybe this might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I just want to point out that this is something we'll round out more. But Netflix takes this algorithmic concept to its logical conclusion in, in the time that we're living now. And I think it's quite insidious, which is to use the algorithm to create content that you will want to watch next. And I think that that's kind of where the limits of the algorithm are shown, because I'm actually a, a proponent of the algorithm finding out what you want to watch next. Boo. Boo. Terrible. Wrong. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> as the resident evil, as JD called it, the resident <laughs> data scientist expert. But using the algorithm to create art, I think, is beyond the scope. Oh, that's a bridge too far for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not to be an absolute wiener about this, but people should watch films outside of their comfort zone. People should branch out and watch different kinds of movies. I don't, I don't want to say the totally cringe thing that's like, good art should challenge you or whatever the hell. But, but actually, though, yeah, you shouldn't just watch like, oh, I watched Pulp Fiction, and now the algorithm says I should watch Tarantino ripoffs like Smoke and Aces and the Boondock Saints. Like, I don't think that's a good thing. But uh, let me just finish off the Netflix section because we kind of allude to the fall of Netflix. And I think it's just this existential problem that it needs to create its own content in order to keep subscribers because everybody else has their own platform now. And so Netflix faces like an existential thing where it's like, well, what are we going to show people? We have to make content. Well, we don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. We're a technology company. And we'll talk about later what happens when a technology company is forced to make content. If they don't have the institutional memory. They don't. Paramount no. Pictures have been making movies for fucking 100 years, probably. Yeah, and I think <laughs> you can see just in terms like we're wrapping up the potential fall of Netflix that might happen. Now, mm-hmm. these market forces at play that we've described, like other competition in streaming and password sharing, right? They want to atomize people so hard. Each person in their pod pays for the product because they need to maximize revenue when people don't want to pay for it anymore. They don't want to pay for it if they can't share and they don't want to pay for content that they don't even like. So I think it actually is kind of interesting. They're not the same, but the arcs of Blockbuster and Netflix do kind of mirror one another. Netflix was going fine as long as nothing bad ever happened. As long as there was no competition. (laughs) Yeah, they mirror one another. They were fine unless nothing went wrong. And you have these asinine business decisions that come from up top, like we're going to crack down on password sharing or whatever the fuck. I think that's a nice way to close it out. So now we're going to get into our themes of the episode. We know we we love our themes here on Remember Shuffle. Mm -hmm. We'll talk first about society's move towards a subscription model, because that's one of the ways in which Blockbuster and Netflix are are an interesting microcosm for the rest of society. Yeah, so just this idea that increasingly we are being pushed, the market forces and the profit motive and all these things are pushing us more and more into this space where we don't get to have anything. Nobody gets treats anymore. (laughs) The treats are doled out on a subscription basis, a little bit at a time, directly to your fucking lizard brain. Just a little bit at a time to keep the dopamine going, just enough that you come back for more. And there used to be, yeah, ways that you could go and acquire things and you could purchase a thing and then you just had it. It was just yours. And over the last like 10 to 15 years, just the acceleration and this movement towards it's all got to be subscription. You have to keep paying for it, but you'll never get it. So before you could pay once, own something forever. Now you pay forever and you own it never. (laughs) 
Yeah. And part of that, the only way to sustain that is for there not to be physical things. Because you can have and keep a physical thing. And if, you know, if Netflix sends goons to come get it, you can hide it. (laughs) You hide it in your attic. I don't know. But now there's no thing to have. So they can take it back at any time. The move to digital, just the way that it facilitated that and how quickly that's now been mobilized as the main way to keep you literally indebted to these companies so that you can keep getting your treats Hmm. is this idea that now everything is subscription, everything is digital, nothing is yours. And so a thing that I just saw, which blows my mind, is that Disney Plus or Disney is selling like box box art, like DVD box cases. Ooh, a box set. I love a good box yeah, set. Yeah, a box set. I put it um, on my shelf. <laughs> for uh, WandaVision, one of the Marvel shows, and it's empty. <laughs> They sell the box set so you can see and it's holographic. You know, you can turn it and it changes from the black and white to the color. But there's nothing in it. So you would pay them money to have an empty box so that you could put it on your shelf with your other things that you own. But as a little reminder and a little totem of what is to come, which is that's done now. Is there like a digital code in it? So you can get extras or whatever? No, it's a box. Wow. You will own nothing. I feel like a cleverer person could come up with some sort of sort of metaphor or allegory out of this whole situation, but it's failing me right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw another story. This is just another example, but it's an example that we could use to dunk on Netflix. In the early days of Netflix, they acquired the rights to bring back Arrested Development. They came out five years apart, and Netflix got rid of Arrested Development, or someone bought it back, or Netflix lost the rights, something of that nature, whatever. Another stupid streaming giant, I want to say, I don't know, maybe Chortle or Glorp or <laughs> Uh, Quibi. Or maybe Quibi. I love Chortle. <laughs> Acquired Arrested Development, but they could only buy those first three seasons from Fox. Netflix didn't sell them because they're trying to bury their shameful mistake, which is crazy. Or maybe they didn't want to buy them because they were bad, but Netflix didn't mm-hmm. sell it. So you just can't see the bad seasons of Arrested Development. Editors note, they've actually since fixed this problem due to fan outrage. And hmm. I'm well into Luddite territory at this point, but like, it is kind of annoying to be like a physical media is important or, you know, like oh, the record guys who are like, oh, the scratch is what makes it good. But to an extent, there is something to that. A DVD or a Blu-ray will show you a thing whenever you want, and it will be in fucking now crystal clear 4K quality that literally you can't get if you stream. So not only is the quality worse, but you just might not have it anymore because if they take it away it's gone and we're in this wild era where shows come out and then three months later they're just taken down because it's i don't know there's all this weird like the batgirl movie where there's like tax write-offs they made a whole movie (laughs) people worked on that they just didn't release it no one saw it it's gone (laughs) they just fucking vaporized it but studios now have this ability because nobody gets it nobody has a physical copy yeah 50 years ago, someone would have smuggled out the big flammable <laughs> reel of film. The people need to see this Batgirl picture. <laughs> it's like Equilibrium, but he's guarding the back. In, the back <laughs> the movie. Yeah, you have to take, take your pill every day so you forget the Batgirl movie ever existed. <laughs> if the people remember the Batgirl movie, imagine what they do. 
So now we're in this bizarre era where not only do you not get to own things, but these companies can, for arbitrary business, which we know is often not even good business decisions, can just make things go away or this fucked up thing where they're also editing movies now. Mm -hmm. So classic films are being edited because of, I don't know, a a bad word or whatever it is. And that just shouldn't be how art is, I guess. Yeah, they're they're airbrushing these movies like fucking Stalin (laughs) getting rid of his enemies in the photo. (laughs) And yeah, sometimes it's for, as Kyle alluded to, social justice reasons, some woke capitalism reasons. That's fine. I would rather just some kind of disclaimer at the top of the movie. Like, hey, everybody, Fred Astaire is going to do blackface in Swing Time, the tap dancing movie. Yeah, we know this is bad. (laughs) It shouldn't be like that. And maybe it's important to recognize that this stuff happened. Yeah. And there there was a time when this was normal enough that everyone was like, (laughs) oh, Fred. Well, (laughs) Mr. Bojangle. What Ben is trying to say is that when they took out the Avatar tail fucking scene. That's what I was building towards. Yeah. That was the burning of the Library of Alexandria. <laughs> no, no, but like, it, okay, it's not the fucking burning of the Library of Alexandria, but taking out stuff that they just realize is cringe and bad, like, you don't get a do over, man. You put out your art for everyone, and now it's ours. You don't get to do over mm-hmm. the stupid hair tail fucking. And Giordano's being flippant with his uh, Library of Alexandria comment, but I think it is fascinating that that every time we switch physical media, we lose something. So there are silent films that are lost, and they're generally called in film studies orphan cinema. Every time you switch, when we switch from VHS to DVD, from DVD to Blu-ray, obviously it's physically impossible to transfer everything, so some some stuff gets lost in the cracks. But if you're dealing with physical media, you can always dig something up, right? And you don't even need to go that far back to the silent era. There are episodes of Doctor Who from the 1960s that are just lost, but every now and then, you can find them again, right? But that only applies if it's non-digital, if it's physical media. This even does, indeed, go all the way back to the ancient world. When they switched from the book roll to the codex, a whole bunch of shit was lost. And now it's like, we're going to lose so much shit once we digitize it. And you know what? I'm as anti-codex today as I was (laughs) when it first came out. (laughs) And yeah, the limitations aren't technical. They're just legal, Mm -hmm. right? We're hamstringing ourselves for an abstract reason. Yeah, and Again, at the risk of sounding like an obnoxious cinema fucking media guy, I don't know. That's bad. That's not a good thing that art of any kind is just able to be memory hold on someone's whim or altered or changed. That's not a good thing. In the same way that Blockbuster, there wasn't necessarily anything totally amazingly special about it. The reason why it's nostalgic or whatever now is just because it is such a good representation of the way that things used to be that aren't now. I think Netflix, as you said, the mirror there is it is just one representation of where things are going just to finish up this you never own anything section i will say that i kind of disagree with you guys a little bit here i'm, I'm sort of the neoliberal member of the group in that i think that the system just needs to be improved <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> We need to send people the movies digitally, right? I don't want to get a box with shit on it, but they just need to improve the way they're doing things by not touching the art. We're not going to go back and fix Picasso's The Women at Avignon to be less problematic, like with Avatar. And you know what? This is a little note for the movie studios. Put the DVD commentaries on the HBO app. 
<laughs> it's free. You're paying for server space, which is basically free. Throw the Sopranos DVD commentary on the HBO app. I bought DVDs last year because I wanted to see the Sopranos DVD commentaries, and you can't do it. Giordano doesn't own a DVD player. We should make this clear. Right, but I, I was aspirational. I'm like, I will own a DVD <laughs> player at some point and see the David Chase commentary. But yeah, it's like, I do like streaming, I you know? <laughs> It's good, actually. <laughs> and, and I just think that, yeah, they, they need to do the simple things that for some reason they're too boneheaded to do. Like, funny that Napster in 1999 is able to digitally distribute movies and professional companies with billions of dollars are not able to do the same thing by 2010. It is very much like the VHS Supreme Court case where you have to force studios to embrace a new technology and get them to use it. Well, I think this might be a good transition to our next point where we can really just fucking rip into Giordano for his wrong opinions. But <laughs> tech companies are all about reducing friction. And that's the name of the second take is the reduction of friction. And I'll, I'll use a couple of examples. Tech companies are about smoothening life out. When you go to a store, they want you to avoid the tremendous hassle of reaching into your wallet, taking it out, pulling out a card, tapping the card, putting it back. Oh my God, I'm exhausted already and then putting your wallet in your pocket instead you can just whip out your phone that you were probably looking at anyways instead of looking at other humans and you can just tap your google wallet pay tracking <laughs> wiretap app that you have and you've paid congrats you have reduced friction you've reduced that horrible anxiety of taking out your wallet and this is what most tech companies do and the problem is that now because of all the incentives we've identified they need to also make content they need to also make art and art needs friction and texture and it's not just algorithmically generated slop i don't know there's the part of it where it's like yes movies and art should be better and shouldn't be algorithmically generated but again in a way for me the problem with netflix is not just about netflix it's about how it is sort of the er example of this general phenomenon that's going on in all aspects of our life like everything is algorithm now mm -hmm. and so much of our lives are about yeah just things being fed to us set up for us teed up for us in a way that i think is bad like, i think it is bad that things are in some ways more easy and more convenient and and simpler to access yes the lizard part of my brain is like mm, nice i don't have to get off my couch and i have so many things available to me that i can conjure up with my magic device yeah obviously a big part of me loves that but i i just always come back to the jurassic park idea of like yeah we thought about whether we could and we we didn't really think about should we should you be able <laughs> to instantly stream the whole catalog of cinema at all times like maybe would that actually be good for us maybe not maybe we I shouldn't be should. able to like have i think it's it seems quite clear that tiktok is destroying the brains of children <laughs> like maybe we shouldn't just have constant stimulus fed to us at all times and just be able to pull that out and for the stimulus to get better at capturing us that's the part that i'm like yeah freaked out by and netflix is just a part of that and part of the general trend of like it's just easier to sit on your phone and look at your phone than do literally anything else now you don't have to go to the grocery store you can order it like all these things yes they're convenient yes i do them and when i step back and think about it i'm like this isn't good for me my brain is definitely worse than it used to be i can't concentrate anymore i have no attention span right like the fact that you can order your groceries online or have 
pre-made meals delivered to your house. And it's like, okay, I guess we can do this, but maybe we should go to the grocery store. Removing cooking and shopping from your life kind of gets rid of what life has been like and just seems like a fundamental part of having a life in a community of people around you. And the cinema is the ultimate example of that because the cinema exists because in the 20s, that was the only way to distribute and show a movie, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. If you were inventing the concept of watching a movie from whole cloth today, the idea of having a big room where everybody would come and watch a movie is fucking stupid. Oh, yeah. But it makes sense. There's something about it that it doesn't make any logical sense, but it feels good to sit in that room with everybody and watch a projected piece of film. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, I think you can think about tech's invasive effect on all the other processes of life, like grocery shopping, like riding a bike somewhere. Literally all of retail. Communicating with one another. A fucking exercising, man. But yeah, the net result of all of this is, yes, life is more convenient and people are like sadder and more alienated than ever. There's a reason why people fly from Spain to Bend, Oregon <laughs> to go to a blockbuster. And it's, again, it's this idea of we're just kind of grasping at a sense of what the fuck is this world? What have they done to us? What did they do to us? To quote Tim Robinson. But yeah, it's just easier to just stay inside now and not interact with people. And as part of that smoothening of life, I think that's also part of why every time you're in public, it feels like you're in a fucking pressure cooker now. Like when you're on a plane <laughs> and you just have this vague sense of like, at any moment, someone might completely pop off and kill us all is because it's partly tied to this idea of we are exposed to such little distress now. And like, I think especially the North American mind is so used to being catered to and to have conveniences. The idea that anything would remotely present a little bit of friction in your life or might inconvenience you slightly for a moment. People can no longer tolerate that because everything is so now increasingly engineered to just give you what you want. You need the thing, press the button and in two hours, a drone will bring it to you. So long as you've paid your subscription so fee. So long as you have your <laughs> subscription fee. It kind of reminds me of how there are digital music festivals that you have to buy a ticket to. Just give that away for free. The idea that you would buy a ticket to stream a music festival you're completely missing the point of why you go to a music festival. Yeah, and what are to you paying for? To do drugs in a field, right? <laughs> yeah, and wear fun outfits. Copy and paste the digital file and then send me. <laughs> the variable cost is zero, yeah. <laughs> the algorithm recommendation, it removes friction for your taste, like Ben just said, and now it's just serving you the best movies. And it doesn't necessarily mean a movie that will help you grow or develop any kind of new taste. And maybe this is patronizing, but the next Netflix movies, like you shouldn't be watching them. <laughs> <laughs> they are not good. We looked up the top five list of the most watched Netflix movies, and there were some real bangers, right? Forget Taxi Driver. We, we now got Red Notice. Ben and I tried to watch that uh, this morning and really? got like eight minutes in. It's, it's not good. <laughs> Pretty sure they used the word egg about <laughs> 36 times in the first eight minutes. The MacGuffin mm. is Cleopatra's egg, not an ovum, <laughs> an actual egg. When it comes to this friction and how it's been removed from our lives, what it means for movies, I recently watched for the first time uh, The Searchers from 1958. It's generally considered the best Western of all time and one of the best films of all time. It's one of the first revisionist ones. You see John Wayne literally desecrate the corpse of a Comanche because it's trying to portray the Old West as fundamentally 
racist and violent. If you watch it today, it is still challenging and provocative. It's trying to show that this glorious West was just a whole bunch of really violent racist people doing violent racist things. And I watched it and yeah, it's long, it's slow, it has time to breathe as characters go place, like the film takes place over six years. So yeah, you see people change over time. We watched the first eight minutes of Red Notice and I think the most apt comparison we could come up with is like the temple run that you watch while watching someone else put something through a hydraulic press and then a third thing like maybe a family guy clip it is just sensory sludge to apply to your brain it's not trying to make you think about anything or challenge your viewpoints or elicit emotions other than like wow cool well it starts with just an extended opening narration to be like hey here's the plot here's the thing (laughs) that they're gonna be looking for so don't think too hard here's the thing you never heard of now you know about it this is what they're gonna look for you can go back to your phone (laughs) that's the thing these movies because they are made just to like feed content they're not actually made to be watched that's the thing that really fucks with me is you watch and you're like does this count as a movie and the answer is basically no it is a collection of moving picture (laughs) sure (laughs) so in that sense i guess but it's not really made to be watched it's just meant to be played in the background while you're doing other things or like on your phone they know no one's sitting there to be like honey pop the popcorn get the kids tonight we're watching red notice <laughs> right yeah you said you would watch what was it like gray matter or something gray man the gray, oh, man. The gray man the gray man which is like another one of netflix's most watched movies of all time and yeah exactly like ben said it's a movie that's meant to be watched while you're also watching someone play subway surfers in the frame next to it it is like a tiktok movie and tiktok is of course one of the best algorithms out there at just feeding your brain the exact type of stimulation that you want and will keep you drooling (laughs) onto your phone and or give you Tourette's syndrome Mm, ice cream so good (laughs) gang 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 gang. (laughs) she's a scab what she's a scab yeah bad news (laughs) i hate to break that to you guys ice cream not so Okay, let's keep it moving here. So yeah, moving on to just the big techification of movie making, right? And so actually there was a time where movie studios used to make movies. Yeah, and there were three of them. It was like, yeah, Warner Brothers, MGM, Paramount were the three big ones in the like golden age of Hollywood. And now the delivery box company is making movies. And what does that mean for how art is created, right? That a studio who has 80 years of institutional knowledge or at least someone who's doing it, like an independent filmmaker doesn't have the institutional knowledge, but at least the independent filmmaker is inspired by some kind of creative process where Netflix is making movies because if they don't, it will exist existentially affect their technology (laughs) business model and it fundamentally changes how movies get made i read this book on the movie business called the big picture which is really good i recommend it it's where i got that bob Iger quote about the biggest difference in how we make movies now compared to 20 years ago finally movies are made like a real business and if you don't follow that rule if you aren't doing the accounting then but you might be affected by ruthless competition and you will be forced out of the industry like sony almost was and so the only people who can make movies without 
this ruthless financial constraint are tech companies, which is why we've seen our independent art house movies come from tech companies, right? Because Amazon is the company that can make a movie like Manchester by the Sea, mm-hmm. right? Sony and Warner Brothers aren't going to make that anymore. It's it's too risky. Mm-hmm. Same thing with something like The Irishman, right? Netflix is the only one who's like, yeah, we have $200 million. That's no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and so it is, I think, a little morbid that the world's biggest companies are making our art house movies now. Yeah, it turns out that capitalism just can't help but do a monopoly. <laughs> it's, it's the only thing it can do. It's perpetual growth <laughs> will just end up in monopoly. Yeah, in the same way that nature just wants to keep making crabs, <laughs> given, <laughs> given enough time, everything is uh, carcinized. Capitalism, it just it only knows how to converge on one thing, which is horrible monopolies that uh, crush us all. <laughs> and I have a personal theory that companies are only good at doing a single thing. And this is why, by the way, that the Netflix app is one of the best running apps, right? It's super slick. It always remembers where you are. The things on the homepage are relevant, as relevant as they can do, subject to their library, and based on what you just watched. So it's like, hey, you want to get back to the Red Notice? Um, (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) It's why the HBO app fucking sucks, because companies can do one thing, and HBO creates great content, and they have a team of consultants making their app and they don't care and it sucks as a result and so companies can only do a single thing and it's why netflix can't make content and hbo can't make a fucking app that's just the way it works and in fact in the early days of netflix the guy who founded netflix mark randolph they were making 99 percent of their money from selling dvds not renting them Mm -hmm. but he decided to stop selling dvds at great financial cost because it would allow the company to better focus on rentals they knew that that's where they wanted to go and so that's how hyper focused you have to be on a specific task is that even selling dvds is outside of the focus of what you want to do and now the idea that amazon sends you boxes and makes the new season of lord of the rings and does web services (laughs) yeah it's just outside of their wheelhouse to be fully committed to the art of making a movie but giordano can you think of one company that only does one thing still i feel like the market pressures now across capitalism is that it's not enough to just do your one thing well. I think of air travel when they had to ask the government for a bailout in 2020, they had to show the books and the three or four major American airlines said that their stupid rewards card system that they try and make you sign up for was worth as much as all of their planes and all of their routes and all of their airport space (laughs) because they're banks and they make money on debt. Yeah, you're forced into doing something else. I think it's also important to not lionize movie studios to an extent. They were run by uh, predators, (laughs) famously, (laughs) forever, and committed so much crime and did a lot of bad stuff. So... Yeah, recognize uh, that's not good. (laughs) And they were also operating under the profit motive. They were trying to make money. They were in the business to make money. A thing that is also different now is people used to be like, a good way to make money is to make something that is good. (laughs) If we make something well... Irrelevant. (laughs) Yeah. People will want more of it or they'll go see it or they'll go watch it. And so even though there was the profit motive, you still had an environment in which great movies and 
and and whatever. And I'll clear up why I think mm-hmm. they talk about it a lot in that book, the big picture. Because Sony Pictures is the only, and we know all of this because uh, North Korea hacked their emails and they were all released. Heroes. And so this <laughs> this is why we know so much about Sony specifically. But Sony, of course, they were operating under the profit motive. But there's a difference between operating under the profit motive and trying to maximize your profit according to an equation. Mm-hmm. And making these big movie franchises makes the equation work as seamlessly as possible because they're very predictable in terms of how much money they're going to make. And Sony actually tries to buck that trend. They're trying to make character-driven novel dramas well into the 2000s because they don't want to make franchise movies. But in the end, their parent company, Sony, you know, from Japan, (laughs) is like... (laughs) Oh, Sony from Japan! (laughs) Sony, like, technology products or whatever, not Sony Pictures, is like, no, you're not allowed to do this anymore. Your job is to maximize profit. You don't Mm want to just try and make money. Your job is to make as much money as you can. So get on it with the franchises, which is why they had some hilarious attempts to make After Earth. Because you can't make a franchise. It's like trying to be a meme. It's just, you can't, it's really difficult to artificially make a franchise when you're like, yeah, Narnia is super important in the Western canon and we're going to do a franchise on this. And it's like, yeah, but this isn't inspired. This is clearly a cash grab. Yeah. The history of Hollywood is full of all these great stories of like some passionate director or writer going to a guy, obviously it was a guy, to be like, (laughs) hey, can you take a chance on me? You know, I have this thing. I want to do this thing. And the guy being like, oh, all right, sure. Here's the funding or whatever. And like the way that things were made for a long time is you'd have a writer or multiple writers and you had your fucking DP that you worked with and you had all these different people who were part of this massive collaborative thing and people actually worked together and people had really specific roles and they had tremendous experience and they knew how to do lighting and all of this kind of amazing network of skill and passion would get harnessed to make a thing that then people could watch and enjoy. And that all basically is gone now. Mm-hmm. Look at the writer's strike. Yeah. Then there's this thread on, the on Twitter rooms. recently. Yeah. In lieu of the, the writer's strike going on right now where someone was talking about how, yeah, I got asked to do a Netflix show and I was like, well, I don't have any writers. And they're like, don't worry about it. You know, write some stuff and then get like, an intern basically to do a first pass. Tell them it's, you know, it's exposure. It's good. And then get someone else to do a second, punch it up and then you're good to go. And so, yeah, the days where, yeah, there would be a writer's room and people would sit around like the famous tales of the early seasons of the Simpsons and bat ideas and create together and come up with these these stories. It's gone because yeah, these new tech companies, they don't have any of that infrastructure and they're fundamentally disinterested in it. To them, there's no value in doing that because it costs more. Mm-hmm. So the fucking line doesn't go the right direction when you have <laughs> that in or it doesn't go as sharply in the right direction. And so that's the reason why things are just shittier now. TV shows are worse because... It's been gigified. Right? Yeah. They've gigified writing. They've gigified the entire movie making industry. And now they're just trying to fucking scan people's faces and give them $20 <laughs> and saying, thank you so much. You're going to be in the movies, kid. If you are a Hollywood pervert, you may have my face for $20. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've min-maxed through technology oh, yeah. the content creation process. And it's like, we're a technology company. Should we rely on the 100 years of accumulated institutional knowledge for how to write a show? And it's like, nah, nah, nah. We c- it would actually just be cheaper just to have one writer, you know? Yeah. So just to close out this bit about the techification of movie making, I should note that the founder of Netflix, Mark Randolph, is a descendant of Sigmund Freud and Edward Bernays. And Edward Bernays, if he's, he's not quite as well known as Sigmund Freud, 
Troy, but he invented the academic field of public relations, so basically advertising, and overthrew the Guatemalan government for the CIA <laughs> on behalf of fruit companies. He also is the one who figured out in the early 20th century, women weren't smoking, and it's like, we're leaving money on the table. We can't get these broads to smoke. And so he linked it to the fight for the right to vote. He got the suffragettes <laughs> awesome. to start chain smoking, and all these women were inspired by the enfranchising smoking women. And then when they conquered that, they moved on to children. <laughs> so <laughs> perpetual growth, baby. Every century gets the member of this family that we deserve. You know, first, Sigmund, <laughs> first Sigmund Freud, then Edward Bernays, and now Mark Randolph, who gave us one of the most recognizable algorithms that governs our society. And it's always funny to see how this happens with families. It's like when you find out that Elizabeth Holmes' father was a VP at Enron, and you're like, this is just all so perfectly balanced. You got you know? fraud in your bones, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> I was born in the fraud, molded by it. <laughs> My pappy was a fraudster. His pappy was a fraudster. <laughs> it's funny now that seeing that Netflix red N in the bottom left of an icon is the surest way to tell that a piece of content is dog shit. Absolute garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was created by an algorithm. It was created based on like, hmm, a study says that the best content that we should make is dating shows about people with Asperger's or something. <laughs> it's not inspired by like a showrunner or a storyteller in any way. There are a couple exceptions to the red Netflix end, but they're the shows that Netflix canceled. <laughs> like BoJack yeah. Horseman, I, I think is good. I know it's got some haters out there, but I like BoJack Horseman and they canceled it when the showrunners unionized. <laughs> or... <laughs> I don't know. I, I like a few Netflix shows. I like Russian Doll, but I think it's also something that they've canceled. Hmm. Yeah. Or it's something they acquire. Yes. yes. Right. And then like they slap like the Peaky Blinders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so t- maybe take that again. Maybe don't say slap the end on it. <laughs> Netflix is the new end. <laughs> well, you know, in a way, it is a bit of a scarlet letter uh, at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to talk a little bit about the nature of the algorithm, the almighty algorithm, because Truanon talks about this in their 300th episode. But it seems like since the 1970s, we've moved towards a society where everything in our lives is optimized, right? The YouTube video that will be in front of you, what ads you will see, what food will be put at eye level on the shelf at the grocery store, who will drive you. Everything is driven by some kind of algorithm. And this is just something that capital does. Capital is a, a mass that sucks things into it and then tries to replicate itself as best it can. And I think 3G capital is the best example of this. 3G bought Budweiser in 2005. This company was owned for 150 years by a single family and a boomer was in charge for three years before they lost the company. <laughs> <laughs> it, it operated through prohibition. <laughs> By selling yeast, and a boomer made it about three years through doing coke all the time and spending time on private jets before they lost control. And now it's run by accountants, and the algorithm is in control. Giordano, if you think 3G capital is bad, I've got a lot of pamphlets about 5G capital that you're going to be very interested in. Oh, no. And 
any element that can't be calculated is thrown overboard, right? So Budweiser famously, like in every water tower town in America, would have the Clydesdales walk in the local parade, the corn festival or whatever. And they were like, oh, we can't measure what the Clydesdales are doing for profitability, so it's got to go. And it's like, yeah, but this is beloved by all these towns. Well, it's not measurable. It can't be fed into the accounting algorithm. No so treats. No cares? treats in the accounting algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> no more No more treats. And Tim Hortons, same thing. It was acquired by 3G, and they made these monstrous decisions that are profitable but are devoid of humanity, right? According to the algorithm, people eating in-store reduces the margin on the profits because we have to clean up after them. So discourage people from eating in-store. Make the uh, architecture hostile God. towards people eating inside. Or baking donuts in-store costs slightly more. So just bake them at a central location and then ship them to every Tim Hortons. Or ship the bag of goop. They had the goop yeah. dough. That it's like, don't mix any doughs in store. We'll send you the goop. <laughs> and yeah, we talk about loss of a third space. I recognize this is going to alienate the American listeners. But for those of you who don't know, in Canada, in the 90s and 2000s, if you went to a Tim Hortons, every old person within <laughs> yes. a several kilometer radius would be there hanging out, shooting the shit. They didn't have anything else to do. They didn't have anywhere else to go. But they were there hanging out with their pals, sipping on coffee for hours. There's a 95% mm. chance you would walk in and hear some variation of the phrase, Hey, Bill, how the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, again, albeit through the auspices of a corporation, was a community service that that provided. So to to do away with that, uh, you know, horrifying. Yeah, no, 3G was literally just the margins on the third space are not as high as the drive through so get rid of it. <laughs> it is an extractive company, mm-hmm. and I've spoken to Tim Hortons franchisees, and they said that that was exactly the goal, is to extract as much profit from the company as possible, and then pay it out to the executives. It's not even like they reinvested it in the business. 3G, which is a Brazilian company, came in, bought a national icon brand, extracted as much profit as possible, and then paid out hundreds of millions of dollars to its executives. And their corporate strategy in the 2000s was to buy brands that people had a patriotic loyalty to, like Budweiser and Tim Hortons, and then extract profit from that loyalty mm-hmm. to be like, oh, we can take this thing loyalty and turn that into money, <laughs> which Good is God, such a morbid concept. And I only bring this up with respect to Blockbuster because for all of its management faults, at least it wasn't led by a computer. Mm-hmm. You know, it was led by idiotic humans. <laughs> and, the biggest dum-dums like, ever. And I think that we've lost the charm of a stupid human at least being in charge, right? <laughs> and when we posted on Twitter that we were doing a Blockbuster episodes, we got some replies saying, oh yeah, I remember when they did the two-for-one video games and I got all these free games. And it's like, yeah, that destroyed Blockbuster's <laughs> profitability. <laughs> But it also made people happy and gave people a sense of liking the commerce process Mm -hmm. instead of Blockbuster just trying to extract at an optimal rate as much money from you as possible. Yeah. And so I think that that's a nice place to end this talk about the algorithm is just how the algorithm, I guess it's more efficient, but it's also extremely extractive. And it has huge social costs. (laughs) Yeah. Incalculable social costs. (laughs) 
Yeah. I would like my closing statement to just be, uh, please go to your local library. Yes. Please, that's exactly please, what please. I was going to say. Like we didn't mm-hmm. say this in this episode. One of the funniest things about Blockbuster is that everything we've been talking about Blockbuster and Netflix this episode, you can go to the library and get a movie. You could do it in the 80s, 90s, and even today. Those libraries, mm-hmm. if someone pitched them today, we would not get them. And if you look into what they do in terms of English language classes for recent immigrants or clubs for senior citizens who are the most lonely and alienated, if you think you're lonely and alienated, <laughs> imagine, being an old per- <laughs> imagine being an old person and seeing the fucking TikTok gang gang and being like i think i have alzheimer's because i'm so discombobulated by what i just saw go to the fucking library please and if you don't want to go to the library because it's too hard at the very least download their app your library almost certainly has an app and you can get audiobooks ebook rentals and then at least they can go to the city and say that they have more engagement with their services even if they aren't walking in through the door yeah huge shout out to libraries librarians <laughs> keep it up you're doing good work <laughs> yeah there's not only is there well i guess sometimes there's late fees but there's <laughs> <laughs> but there's no initial fees. And honestly, half the time when you have a late fee, they're like, ah, don't worry about it. Yeah, because yeah. they're generally run by good people who just want you to have a thing, including a yeah third space. In a lot of places, the library is it. If you go to any library, it's going to have the wackiest hodgepodge of people <laughs> hanging out, sharing a space together communally. And that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and partially, it's also because they have nowhere else to go. Right. But <laughs> a huge shout out to libraries. Huge shout out to librarians. Go to your local library. Check them out. Do the thing. We do 50% of our research for this show through a library, right? Either through a book or the audiobooks that it offers. It has a huge selection. It's awesome. And it's fucking free. Dude, and you get the special card. You still get to (laughs) be a special boy. You show them the card and then you get the thing for free. Yeah, it rocks. It is truly a thing out of time. It's one of those things that would, if you proposed it now and it didn't exist, like the cinema, people would be like, that sounds like communist nonsense. Because it exists outside of the profit motive, and we do not know how to deal with something like that. So yeah, that's been uh, our Remember Shuffle retrospective on Blockbuster and Netflix. As I always say, please like, subscribe, give us five stars, shout us out on social media. Jordana, are you still offering watercolors? Yes, actually, why not? <laughs> if you... <laughs> sure. I have sent out watercolors in the past and some stickers for the show. Yeah, if you just tweet that you're liking the show, it does a lot to help us out, or post your Instagram story like, hey, this pod was decent. <laughs> I will good. send you <laughs> Well you can say whatever you want You can complain about it I guess I mean ideally you wouldn't But Engagements Engagements I we won't send you a water <laughs> Yeah I'll send you some, some stickers And a watercolor For the show If nice. you just post to Any kind of social media I mean a real one Don't use fucking Mastodon or something <laughs> But like And yeah Big thank you to our guest Kyle For coming on the pod Always a good time Yes yeah. Get out of your pods people <laughs> Go uh, Go to a third space Go to a third space Meet yeah. people Yeah push back It doesn't have to be this way <laughs> Do you have anything you want to plug besides the library? No. (laughs) No, that's it. That's all there is, Giordano. You don't understand. (laughs) Have you not been listening? That's all there is. Be able to blockbuster out. He's gotta be caught. He's gotta be tough. Cause he is more evil than anyone here.